Hey, I'm Steve O'Farrell, co-founder and managing partner at The Royals, an independent Australian advertising agency that's focused on delivering unnatural change for clients through undeniable creativity. Our podcast, Chunk of Change, is where we go deep on the methods and madness required to create the sort of change that you want to see in the world. At the age of 19, Perry Cross was severely injured in a rugby tackle and told he would never walk again. In fact, he was to spend the rest of his life on life support, paralysed from the neck down. Amidst the heartbreak, grief and pain, somehow Perry carved out a new lease on life and within a few years became one of the world's most inspiring and effective spinal research advocates and public speakers. He's since dedicated his life to helping others with a disability, raising awareness of spinal injuries and creating a movement that's seen tens of thousands of people support the need for urgent research to help cure paralysis. Perry's been an inspiration of mine personally for almost as long as I can remember. So I'm delighted to be able to share his insights and his story with the rest of you today. So please enjoy this very special episode of Chunk of Change with the legendary Perry Cross. And finally, if you'd like to donate to Perry's Research Foundation, please don't hesitate to go to pcsrf.org.au. That's pcsrf.org.au. G'day, Perry. Thanks very much for joining us on Chunk of Change. G'day, Steve. No worries, mate. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, mate. Can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to our chat today. I probably should mention to start that you and I have known each other for about 30 years, thanks to a mutual mate of ours by the name of Brendan Behan. My earliest memories of you, you were an absolute jet of a sportsman. From memory, you were a, a first 11 cricketer, first eight rower, you were a gun rugby player, basically a knockabout kid from the country who was absolutely loved by everyone you met. And then tragically at the age of 19, you broke your neck in a rugby accident. And this podcast's all about the cause and effect of significant change. So I wanted to start by asking you in your own words, can you help listeners understand how your life changed that day you had your accident? Yeah, well, I, I love your um, your interest, Steve. You might have um, you might have overrated me a little bit, but that's Not okay. Um, Not true. <laughs> no, um, mate. Um, I remember the day of my injury um, pretty clearly. I was nineteen. I, you know, young, fit, healthy guy. I picked up the ball off the back of a ruck, ended up. I was tackled. In that tackle, I broke my neck. And then I remember laying on the ground, vividly thinking, holy hell, something really bad has just happened. Um, and I knew straight away that I was paralyzed. Um, you know, you, you can't feel and you can't move straight away. And um, the first thing I did was say to my mates, you know, I, I can't move, we, you know, I'm in trouble. And um, So you, you could know. talk, you just couldn't yeah. move. Yeah. Right. And I was fully conscious, um, which is scary. It's almost too scary because you, you're laying there going, I've just ruined my body in a sense, you know, like, because it's a, such a permanent thing when you have a spinal injury. Um, and the shock and the trauma can't be good for you because emotionally it's pretty tough. And so you knew something was wrong and presumably they called for an ambulance pretty quick. 
Yeah, they did. Do you remember getting in the ambulance or do you? is it the next thing you recall just waking up in hospital? You have sort of periods of memory recall certain parts of it, rolling hospital and certain people standing around, but straight away you're pretty heavily dosed up on some you know, pain-killing drugs and lots of stuff. I, I don't really recall much very well for a significant period of time, you know, days, potentially weeks, weren't very clear, like because your body is going through some massive trauma and, um, you know, you're in and out of sort of induced comas just so that your body can cope with it, what's happening. So, and, and during that period, I went onto a ventilator for those people who are not familiar, which is basically life support. Uh, ironically, that's what the COVID virus is sort of about. It's people getting really, really sick um, with their lungs and they end up on ventilators because they can't breathe probably. Well, when you have a significant spinal injury, you know, a very high-level spinal injury, which is close to the base of the brain, that's what happens to your lungs as well. You, um, your diaphragm is paralysed, no longer breathe. And so that same ventilator is, is what allows you to breathe currently now. Mm. The trauma must have been beyond belief, Pez. Um, yeah. How did you get through those? Understandably, the first probably few days or weeks are pretty hazy, but how did you get through beyond just that, that initial hospital period? Talk us through that. Well, I think it's, um, you know, from my perspective, and you probably have a view on this too, mate, because I probably get out of it lightly in the respect that I have to live with this and I don't get any choice or say in the matter. But the trauma that your family, your friends, everyone around you go through is just unbelievable and it must be so hard for them because they can't help and they can't do anything to fix it and that must be really heartbreaking especially for you know your parents and your really close love loved ones and your close friends so um and you know people like brendan who sit by bed every day to make sure that you're coping and that sort of stuff it's probably a coping mechanism for all of us yeah, I mean, those friends and and mates can't do too much to help as it relates to the injury itself, but there must have been lots of other stuff around that that they did do. Can you break that down a little bit for us? Yeah, I think it's a matter of distraction, you know, like whatever you focus on um, what's wrong, what you can't do, and all those terrible, awful things, then it creates that spiral, you know. Your, your thoughts go deeper and darker. And I think that was important for me to realise that stop focusing on what was really awful. Um, engage with the people around you. Treat yourself like one of the boys and, you know, talk to your mates as you normally would. Um, and they did a massive favour for me by doing that in return and not being, uh, you know, focused on my injury and my disability. Because in your book, which is called Still Standing, by the way, you, d- you describe breaking your neck as like turning out the light. Why do you use that analogy? If you imagine a PowerPoint or a light switch um, and there's electricity running through the, the house or the light, as soon as you flick that switch, that is what decides or engages electricity. Well, the same sort of thing happens when you suffer a spinal cord injury, except it's permanent and you can't flick the switch back the other way again. Um, as soon as you damage your spinal cord, 
The electricity running between our brain and our body continuously sending signals. When you switch off that power, when you break your neck, that stops. And that's what causes paralysis. And I think um, it's a great analogy. Um, yeah, it's an, it's an analogy that you can probably apply, though, I reckon, mate, to a bunch of other aspects of your life beyond just the electricity that runs up and down your spinal cord. I mean, I would describe you as someone who shoots the lights out better than just about anybody I know. Um, and I'd love to to hear from you on on what you actually put that that energy, that vibrancy, that can-do attitude down to. Yeah, well, maybe it's part of flicking the switch. I don't know. Um, well, I figure people with similar like-mindedness often work together or play sport together or whatever it might be that drives us and... Um, that's hard to put your finger on, but um, it's an attitude that you can choose to adopt or you can choose not to adopt. You can either focus on what you can do and where you're going and all those good things in life, or you can have the attitude of, oh, well, I'll focus on the bad stuff. And, and you can see the, the outcomes that that creates for certain people. Um, and I'm not saying it's that easy. There'll always be things that get more difficult um, and sometimes it's overwhelming. I have my bad days like everyone else, mate. Just you got to understand the difference between what you know mental health is and what mental illness is, I suppose. So, the the day to day challenges that you experience every day, how would how would you describe those challenges now versus? I mean, it's it's what twenty five years ago now since you broke your mm. neck. But how would you describe your day to day challenges now compared to you know what they were before your injury? Yeah, I pretty quickly put into place a really really solid routine and um, you know basically treat your body like a business in a sense that if you're going to look after yourself you're going to have to be really thorough very routine so that you can maintain a level of health that will allow me to function in the community and I think that's what um, maybe makes me uh, unique in the fact that I've applied that so that I can be out there and doing things um, so routines, people, routines like what? Well, you know, just same time every day, getting up and getting ready and, you know, early starts and, and not letting my disability be an excuse for starting later and I can't come to that meeting because I, I can't get there on time because it takes me longer to get ready than everyone else. You know, it takes me two hours to get showered and dressed every morning. Um, means we just got to start two hours earlier. Amazing. Look, I thought it might be interesting if we... If we talk about change and specifically the monumental change that you went through either side of the accident itself. So you've had a a few more years now living actually with your disability than what you had in the lead up to the accident itself. So I thought it'd be interesting to maybe summarise the type of change that you went through on a couple of different dimensions. So in simplest possible terms, how would you describe, for example, life before your accident versus life after your accident, if you had to put that down to some kind of really easy to understand terms, how would you describe that? Yeah, I wasn't the most academic person before my injury, so I had to flick a switch and say, right, I'm going to change my attitude towards learning and education. I was obviously really good at sport. I had to reapply my mind and my focus towards understanding and being educated. What about self-esteem before versus self-esteem after? That's different. I think self-esteem can be an innate thing that before I had, you know, plenty of self-esteem and pride in what I do, and I still do, 
today. That hasn't changed to me at all. Friendship before versus friendship after? Um, I think you'll find that friendships strengthen over time or they wilter over time. You know, it's one or the other. And I've made some incredibly strong relationships with my friends and at the same time. There are people that sort of, like everyone in life, just we go in different paths. Fun before versus fun after? Always, mate. Fun and plenty of it. Um, <laughs> it's, one of, it's one of my, um, you know, philosophies in life is um, rule number six. Don't take life too goddamn seriously. And, you know, if you're referring back to rule number five, well, just read rule number six. That's basically it. Just enjoy life. We're not here for a long time. Um, so make it enjoyable. Well said. What about sex before versus sex after? Well... It's probably one of the most um, disappointing things is, you know, the ability to be able to um, engage romantically with um, a woman is, is more challenging. And that's, that, to be really, really brutally honest, um, is hard. That sucks um, because, you know, you're a healthy, young, active 19-year-old and then next minute um, all that changes. And um, so, um, yeah, what do you say? <laughs> what about... Your why? What about your life's purpose before versus your life's purpose afterwards? Well, I think I'm lucky now that I've been given a, a concentration in life. I, you know, I'm trying to make a difference for myself, number one, but it applies to a lot of people across the board. And I think when anyone in business or life sets out on a journey, you should be trying to improve things in life. And you never really invent a new wheel, you just make improvements to the wheel. And I think that's what I'm trying to do with medical research, accessible homes. Things that I focus on now aren't groundbreaking world first. They're just improvements on what already exists. So we're going to talk about those improvements in a little bit, Pez, but one, one question I wanted to include as part of this as well is just the observation that you've been through and faced and beyond that flourished through, I reckon it's got to be one of the most harrowing human experiences there is. Does that leave much room for fear? Is there anything that scares you anymore? Well, I try not to be driven by fear or doubt. Um, And I think that's important for people to um, recognise what fear and doubt is. And if they're your drivers, then they're the wrong drivers you want. You want to be led by things that are that are creating hope and joy and all those other things. You don't want to be driven by fear. Um, and that can be sometimes looked at as an economic fear. The first few years after my injury, I was so um, led by wanting to do things, I would just get out of bed and, and, and get into a routine without anything to do. Like, there wasn't much I could do, but I knew that if I got up and got started that was momentum and it leads to more and more you know got to ask in the present day context what about COVID how are you doing COVID as a as a quadriplegic with some pretty confronting disabilities I can't claim to be familiar with you know the effects on your immune system but presumably there's there's some additional precautions that you'd need to take yeah there is and and I think um, without being too blunt people experiencing COVID and those people going through, you know, serious lockdown of isolation, that sort of stuff, maybe are experiencing what life 
can be like with pe- for people with disabilities. People with disabilities go through horrible periods of isolation, loneliness, all these things that are created because of their disability and it's now heightened in these times. And for me, you know, my risk is that um, being ventilated, I pick up this disease, which is a respiratory disease, that then, then travels into my lungs and then my lungs were ultimately um, shut down. That's, that's basically what happens. Um, I do need to be careful. I've got a team of carers which are incredible at sort of helping me manage at risk and they understand that the risk is, you know, both ways. So I'm, I'm fortunate I have great people around me. And you mentioned the isolation that a lot of people with disabilities experience. Why do you think that's the case, Pez? Is it societal thing, cultural thing, um, to do with the physical disabilities themselves, governmental? Help me understand why you say that and why you think that is. There's probably a, a few variables. One of them is that the world of um, people with disabilities has never been very well funded ever. Um, we were were never properly funded by any levels of government in the past. But it's starting to change and the National Disability Insurance Scheme has been rolled out across Australia. Some people probably haven't ever heard of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, um, yet it's a, it's a budget item on the federal government's books that, um, that is about $22 billion annually. And it's a significant um, chunk of change for for the Australian government to um, be putting into people with with disabilities, and it's and it's it can't um, be spent you know quickly enough and soon enough um, because people don't have or haven't had the supports they need, and we're only just getting to the point where some of those supports are being rolled out properly now in this day and age. And I, you know, the people are born with disabilities and they've lived with this all their lives, so. It's a long road. How much further or what are the gaps as you still see them until we can say that we have properly addressed some of those issues that lead to the isolation of people with significant disabilities? Yeah, I guess people can, listeners can ask themselves a few questions. Do you employ someone that has a disability? Do you know anyone that has a disability? Is your business wheelchair friendly? Is your home wheelchair friendly? These simple questions, and they don't have to be all answered with a yes, but they're considerations that you should have in life because who's to say that someone won't acquire a disability in their older older age? It's the most um, common time when people will acquire a disability and then with an ageing population, we need to consider these things. Um, our, Our population will age more quickly than ever in the next in a few years, we need to be prepared for some of these things. So speaking of preparing for, for what's next and also the need for independence for people with significant disabilities, what, you've done a stack of things in business, Pez, but one of your latest ventures, Accessible Homes Australia, tell us how it came about and what you're looking to, to get from it. Yeah, so it's, it's an evolution from the NDIS, which um, has a, a uh, scheme inside it, which is focused on specialist disability accommodation. So the government now are encouraging um, developers and builders and that to put effort into providing 
accessible homes, um, there's a pretty strict building code and a set of guidelines around what that needs to look like. So there's a bit of red tape involved in making it happen, but it's important infrastructure building for the nation. And there's a shortage of accessible homes in Australia for people who use wheelchairs. I've lived for 26 years in a house provided by my family that I only moved out of in February and I've now got my own home, which is fully wheelchair accessible, uh, fully automated, so controlled by voice control. So I can control the aircon, the lights, the blinds, the TV, everything, you name it, it's voice control. And this technology is creating independence and freedom, control, choice for people that have never had this in their lives before. And we can't do more of this quickly enough because it's obviously a huge shortage and demand for it. So Siri is your friend, Pez, I can only assume? Siri is everywhere, my phone, my iPad, my computer. And then I have alternative voice activated control systems. So um, the Google and the Amazon products to operate other devices. So it's actually really good when you have complementary devices controlling different things because then you're not heavily reliant on one system, you can mix it up. Because a lot of what you're talking about is, is independence, right? How would you describe the importance of independence? I'm sure that's something you talk a lot about in terms of Accessible Homes Australia, for example. Yeah, well, for the first time this year, I was able to go back to my bedroom and close the door behind me because I had a voice controlled door, you know, and, and I haven't been able to do that. I haven't had privacy. I haven't had my time, you know, Things where you just go, oh, I just need to go and escape for a minute. Because I've always got people around. There's always someone by my side. I have 24-7 support, which is amazing and great. And I'm very, very grateful for that. But at the same time, you still need to be able to, you know, look at yourself in the mirror um, and reassure yourself that everything's okay. Because then, I mean, that's how you're, you're helping people with disabilities find independence through... Um, the AHA, but yep. what about the Perry Cross Foundation? Because the Perry Cross Foundation is also a remarkable story. Tell us about the work that you do there and some of the positive change you're trying to bring about in terms of yep. treatment for spinal injuries. Yeah, so we, um, we've been on the fundraising journey for a number of years now, but I guess to cut to the chase, at the moment we're optimistic about starting a human clinical trial in the next one or two years. That's probably given what happens with covid might be subject to outbreaks and that sort of stuff. But um, we are working on a technology that takes the olfactory and sheathing cells out of the back of the nasal cavity or otherwise um, at the front of the brain. We use those cells. We take a biopsy and those cells are then purified in a lab by our research team. Then they can use those cells to grow a nerve bridge and those nerve bridges are then transplanted back into the spinal cord. Um, human testing so far has been really, really positive and we're confident that we'll get to human testing in the next year or two, as I said. So that's what we're working on. So what's the nature of that human testing then, mate? Is it is it people who have similar conditions to yourself or is it people who have different forms of disabilities that might be better suited to that particular type of research? It's purely focused on people with chronic spinal cord injuries. So people with... A, spinal cord injury that's older than probably a year or two. Um, so we want to be sure that the technology is what 
is working in not um, just natural recovery, because some people have you know, natural recovery after their injury. So we don't want to work on acute injuries. Um, we want to focus our work on chronic injuries. Um, there's 13,000 Australians living with spinal cord injury. Every day, another person suffers a you know, significant, significant life-changing injury. Um, the cost to our government, last estimate was um, for those 13,000 Australians was in excess of $2 billion annually just in care and supports. So for a small cohort of the community, the ongoing cost is huge. And that, you know, applies to family and friends and, and not just our, you know, our government supports and the health system. It's, it's across the board. It destroys relationships and families and, and we want to make a change in people's lives because for too long we've talked about the evolution of medicine and medical technology and I was the worst science student in my class at school. Um, Look at you now, hey? But I, <laughs> but I had to, um, I had to make a change in my life, and that was what the decision was to you know, put my head down and say, right, we can make a difference here. So, how long? I mean, you may not have a time frame in mind in terms of when you think that people with serious spinal injuries may effectively have a cure. How long do you do you anticipate? those cures or those treatments being available? This might be a terrible analogy, but I'll, I'll use this for you because um, when the Wright brothers first flew an aircraft, they flew, say, 100 metres, 200 metres, whatever it was. It was just a short distance. Um, and look at us today, when it's OK, we can fly, you know, huge jets around the world. You know, you can fly from Perth to London in one haul now. Huge. It's a terrible um, flight, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it is. Yeah, I, would dread being on that. I'm, I would dread being on that flight. But um, aircraft technology evolved over time. It didn't happen overnight. I think that's the same with medical research. I think that might be the same with um, virus technology. I think that's the same with human paralysis. I think it, over time we improve what we do. And that's the same in business. We get better and better and better. Because... You're renowned for the motto that you live by, which is everything is possible. I think you might have made it your own and said, bloody everything is possible. Yeah. Where, did, where does that mindset come from? It, it was a moment in time. I was laying on a, um, a rehab table in New Delhi in India. Um, I've been over there doing some rehab 15 years ago because it was more feasible and cheaper and we didn't have any options to do that sort of stuff in Australia. So I was travelling backwards and forwards to Delhi to get some rehab and some treatment. And I was laying on a rehab table and, um, you know, 14 years earlier, a doctor had told me, you know, you'll be on a ventilator for the rest of your life and you'll never be able to breathe on your own. And the doctor standing beside my, my bed noticed some small function in my diaphragm. And it was only because we'd bothered to look and try different research and test different things that we found something. If I'd have just believed what my physician had said, then we would have never discovered that. And that's why I think that it's important to have the right mindset to never give up. Everything is possible if you give it enough time, consideration and thought. Um, there's always an answer. So did you assume that mindset on your own or was that a function of your upbringing? What do you put that down to? I'm fortunate to have some great people around me. Um, one of my mentors when I was really young Back in my 20s was a guy by the name of 
Craig Brown, he and I made a connection after a function one night. We were standing around chatting and, or, you know, he was standing around, I was talking to him. He said, look, I want to help you with what you do and work on your mind. And we went through some, some mind coaching and that sort of stuff and I realised and understood what the capacity of our mind was and what it is to stay focused, what it is to create a vision, all those simple things that people probably think is a lot of hoo-ha in life. But when you shut your eyes, it's important to have a clear vision and understand what you see, and that's what you want to create in life. And he helped me with that. And then I've got people like the chairman and our foundation and the the managing director of accessible homes, people um, like a gentleman by the name of Tom Ray, who I went to school with, and he has helped my life incredibly just by believing in me and, and... standing around um, being a great advocate for me. And I think that's important as well. Is the, the idea of anything's possible if you put your mind to it, if, if you buy into some semblance of truth in the idea that happiness is correlated to what you want versus your reality, do you think that, that too much ambition or too much blind ambition can sometimes be a negative thing? Yeah, and I, I actually think that that's not what happiness is. I, I actually really think that happiness is just a balance of your current environment and your current situation. So can you ask yourself now, do I have a balance in my health? Is my health under control? Do I have a balance in my wealth and my occupation? And do I have a, a balance in the love and the supports around me? If they're out of, out of skew, if there is one that outweighs the other, then that's when our unhappiness becomes a factor in people's lives. And that's why we get people experiencing that now. People have lost jobs, the livelihoods, they've been destroyed by something that's out of their control and they can't do anything about it. And that's what creates unhappiness, that's what creates sadness, that's what creates depression. And there'll be people that are struggling more than ever um, right now. So what are the key things that provide balance in your life then, Pez? Well, I think, you know, as I mentioned, I've got a strong family. My mum is a tower of strength. You know, she provides a lot of advice and a lot of support. Um, she'll kick my ass when it needs it. Still, um, because everyone needs their ass kicked every now and then. Um, because we do, we're not motivated by the, the right things. And then I'm fortunate I've got a great network of people that help me with the foundation. Um, so support team, Melissa Brown, who's the foundation manager, does an, in, an incredible amount of work behind the scenes that people don't see. And this is what is allowed me to be the front and I guess the lead singer um, <laughs> of the band. Um, you know, you've got to have the, the band members that help create the music and they do that for me in my life. Um, and they get great pleasure and great joy out of seeing this happen. You know, in the last 10 years alone, we've funded in excess of um, $13 million worth of medical research. There's 35 people working in our lab. Um, these are some significant changes because people have believed in what we do and, um, and a vision that I've crazily said, you know, everything is possible, let's go and do it. <laughs> so your mum, Cheryl, Cheryl, Shirley? Cheryl, Shirley, yeah. Yeah. I call Cheryl, yeah. Shirley, you talk a lot about in your book, 
can you describe to us a little bit about your relationship and the effect that she's had on your life? She's always been one to um, let me be a boy when I was a boy, but also put me under the ear when I needed a clip under the ear. So I wouldn't have been the, um, the active athlete type kid that I was if it wasn't for her saying, yeah, go on, you know, go and play sport and, and make the most of your time while you're in a teenage years. So she allowed me to do that, but she's also the first person to say to me, um, particularly when I was in hospital, some of the conversations we had around, um, do you want to live, do you want to die? All this sort of terrible stuff, because I was in a, such a chronically terrible situation. My doctors had said I wouldn't you know, survive 12 months, you know, and she was like, well, you might as well consider what you can do in the next you know, little while to go out in your own way, I suppose. And then I, I said, no, no, I want to live. I want to make the most of my life. And then um, there was a turning point when I left home, when I left hospital. I got home and Cheryl was off to work one morning and I was in bed, still hadn't bothered to get out of bed. And she came into my room and said, you know, get the hell out of bed. You're not going to lay here and be a burden on any one of us. Um, and I, from that day on, decided that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it properly, I'm going to do it well, and I'm not going to be a burden on people around me. And I don't think that anyone should consider themselves a burden. I think you're a burden for yourself if that's what you choose to do in life. Um, No one else. I do selfishly quite like the idea of your mum kicking your ass every now and again, though. When was the last time she she gave you a good kick? About five hours ago. (laughs) (laughs) What was that about? Um, oh, you know, conversations are probably beyond this, but I mean, yeah, just about um, the direction of what I'm doing, why I'm doing what I'm doing. Don't lose the purpose of what you're doing and don't be driven by, you know, government policy or any of this sort of stuff that just leads you naturally down that down a path. She's got an attitude of be a groundbreaker, be a rule changer set the precedent, I suppose. Um, don't just take whatever else is going to take. Create the change for everyone else. Was that purpose-based attitude to business, if you go down your very extensive LinkedIn profile, you yeah. see one of your first jobs goes all the way back to cross carpets, yeah. which I can only assume is the family business. Yeah. What did that family business teach you about, about business in general and, and did it have sort of any real effect as you saw it on, in terms of the entrepreneurial spirit that you've now got? Yeah, it showed me the importance of um, systems and operations and all that um, side of the business that I choose sometimes not engage with as well as I should. Um, I'm guilty of being a, the big, big thinker and the one that creates all the chaos for other people to clean up, which is okay, it's okay because someone actually needs to have the big picture and the vision, but um, I, I did understand that you do need to be diligent in the way you operate, the systems you have in place. I, I don't always choose to live by it because you can be drowned by paperwork and bureaucracy, but it is important if you want to be successful, you're going to have to put some of those really important systems in place. Because systems are quite different to big picture purpose, aren't they? Help me understand a little bit more about how purpose-driven 
the Perry Cross Foundation is, for example, and the role that that plays in the type of change that you want to you want to see in the world every day? Well, there have been some great advances in spinal research over the years, particularly around electrical stimulation. So you can now, you know, connect, you know, pads and electricity to the body. You can get implants that allow for muscles to fire and nerves to slowly regenerate just over time with use. And um, that technology is fantastic. But I, and I could easily go, well, let's just embrace some of that and we'll just go down that path and then work on that. That's an easy game sort of thing. Um, but I chose not to be sort of focused on what other people are doing or um, other research might be creating. I chose to go down a path that is very, very, um, it's a long game. We're talking about developing a cell technology that's going to be implanted in the spinal cord to regrow nerves. Um, that's, it's not a short game. We're, we're working on our long game. Um, and it would be easy just to go, oh, well, we can do something quick and easy. But it, but it takes a bit of courage. It takes a bit of strength. It takes a bit of um, craziness to say, well, I'm not prepared to put up with that. I'm going to work on a solution that's going to be a changer for everyone and not just a few. It's interesting. I was chatting to Paul Donaldson, who's the vice president of strategy at Anheuser-Busch, and he was talking about the importance of making these big purpose-led choices in order to, to drive significant change in industries or in business. What other sorts of choices do you make that are reflective of that in terms of how you choose to operate, the foundation in particular, knowing that what you're trying to achieve is so significant in terms of curing paralysis? Mm. Well, I guess to give you an example, just with um, this current situation with COVID, so we are in a position to host or fundraise the way we traditionally would. And, you know, just in the first or first half of this year, our budget's way down and our turnover's way down. Um, The budget's got a huge hole in it. And that is scary. It's like the longevity of what we do can quickly come to an end because you can only keep tipping funds into research as long as you can keep supporting it. We can't just do it forever without fundraising. And our traditional methods of fundraising were heavily events-focused. We would go and you know, host a sporting legends lunch and raise a couple hundred thousand dollars that would go towards research. Um, now we can't do that anymore, and the potential of ever doing that again is who knows. So we're going to have to be keep we lower to the ground. We're going to have to work with more philanthropic type supports, major donors, bequests, all this sort of stuff to reshape the direction of the foundation. And we're going to have to do it overnight in the sense that, you know, there's no time to waste because the research doesn't stop. And the other, the other interesting role that you play, I think, Pez, is you are the lead singer. You are the front man. And the unfortunate reality for all of us is we're not going to be around forever but do you guys talk about succession planning in in either of the two organisations that you founded and that you run? Yeah. So I'm fortunate that um, one of the directors on our board is a, has a vast experience in the banking world and he's part of his job and his role in, in his day job is around succession planning and that sort of stuff. So we've had some pretty um, cold discussions around what that looks like and it's a hard question because... You know, you're on life support. Someone says to you, well, okay, if you die tomorrow, 
what's the plan here? Um, what are we doing? And it's a, you know, it's the a big boys conversation that you have to have in life. And um, I think everyone should have it. Like it's it's just the reality of life. As much as it sounds harsh, you need to have those things in place. And the same with accessible homes. We know that there are four directors on board, so it's a little bit different. But yeah, the reality of my health situation is that um, I've outlived my expiry date by a long time. <laughs> Um, and I plan to keep going. So, you know, none of us know that what our maker's got in mind for us. Well said, mate. You've won so many awards. Like you've won Suncorp, Young Queenslander of the Year. You're a finalist in the Young Australian of the Year. You've been advisor to the United Nations. Most recently, you were made a member of the Order of Australia. I mean, related to what we're just talking about, when it's all said and done, how how do you want to be remembered? Oh, look, I... I'll let other folks decide that, I guess. I don't, I don't have a, a way that I think... It's not something I would think about. I don't, I don't know how you answer that question, but... Um, you got anything that I you'd just, hope people would say about you? Well... Other than laugh at all those shit jokes that you tell? <laughs> no, I just think... Um, <laughs> I just think enjoying life is the key to life itself. I, I don't think there's any real point um, carrying a burden around life and... Um, but I don't know if that answers the question or not, Steve. But what would you say it is? Like, how does anyone answer that question? Um, what people think of you is up to them. Yeah, that that's a great way of a great way of saying it. I mean, I think for me personally, it's about hopefully creating some some positive change through a combination of our business, our friends, our family, our colleagues. Um, I mean, what I do now, you know, at 46 is very different from what I was doing at 19. Um, I never expected to certainly work in advertising, doing what we do now. But you're great at it then. Maybe this podcast yeah. is an extension of that because yeah. for me it's it's about trying to affect and bring about some positive change in the world. So I think that would probably be be my answer. I mean, the like your refusal to let yourself spiral or look at the negative things in life is really amazing mate i'm sure you you speak about it a lot and you talk about life balance but is there anything else can you unpack that a bit for us in terms of how you do maintain that that positive out, attitude and that positive outlook i don't know I, I, sometimes we overrate it a bit too much um and we will have times where we just got to deal with the situation and that is hard and it takes time it can take hours, it can take days, and it can take, you know, weeks before you can get yourself back on track sometimes just because of uncontrollable situations. But there is um, another analogy, a lot of analogies, but if you take a magnifying glass out into the sun and you wave a magnifying glass around, it doesn't have any power. If you take the same magnifying glass out into the sun and you focus the magnifying glass on an object, say it's a piece of paper, what starts to happen? The magnifying glass starts to burn. It's got power. The, the paper burns um, because of the focus in the magnifying glass. I think our minds have that, that same ability, the same um, electricity, um, that when you concentrate, when you focus, that's when you create the positive things in life. Um, but it's also when you create the negative things in life as well. Um, so you, 
you just got to be careful where you wave that magnifying glass and what you focus on. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that, mate. I, th- I think it was Einstein who said, if you want to live a happy life, tie it to a goal, not to people or things. I reckon, I reckon you've done that pretty well, Pez, i got to say. No, cheers, Steve. Um, mate, you're only as good as, um, you know, the people around you, and I think um, I've got to say that the people around me enable me to live the life I've been um, able to live because I'm the guy who can't move a muscle uh, and I... And I rely on someone else to do everything else. Um, so I've got to say I'm fortunate in that respect that it does take a team to make things happen. Well, mate, it takes people like you to help make this podcast happen and I bloody love taking time out from our COVID isolation to chat to you again, mate. You are one of the most remarkable people I've ever met, continue to be, um, certainly one of the most inspirational people in my life and I know... It's not just me who would say that. You're adored by so many people in the Gold Coast community, your wide group of friends, and are an inspiration for so many reasons for people all over this world. I just hope that some of those people can, can tune in and enjoy some of your words of wisdom coming off the back of this podcast. So thank you very much, Pez. Thanks for joining us on Chunk of Change. Thanks so much, Steve. I appreciate it. Good on you. The other analogy I quite like, Pez, which probably won't make the recording, is you know the Tim Minchin valedictorian speech? Remind me, yeah. He goes, happiness is like an orgasm. If you think about it too much, it doesn't happen. (laughs) That's it. That's exactly it. It's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) You can use that one, mate. Cheers, (laughs) brother.